Fe February 1967, yes. Uh, February 1967, and as is quite normal, uh, given the last name of my father, which was already shared by my mom and my five older siblings, in that same year, early on, there was a divorce, and so there was a split. Later that same year, so this is all the year of my birth, um, my mom remarried, and she married the only man in the world who I call dad. And <laughs> that's a big thing to me. But my dad, he did something for me and my siblings, but I have the mic, so this is about me. But he did something for me that, that changed me for, for the rest of my life, to this day and until I die. He, he sought me. He called me. He, he drew me unto himself. And as one draws water from a well, the water in the bucket is compelled to, the go, to go to the one who draws it. And my dad, he, he gave me his name. He calls me his son. I call him my father, my dad. I became Patrick Lincoln Craig. I was born Patrick Lincoln Perry. So he gave me his name. And in the state of Alaska, at least back in the you know, mid to late 60s, uh, the adoption process, they, they take it, uh, I guess what I would believe would be a step further. They actually modify and change my birth certificate. I didn't bring it here this morning, but if I had it, my birth certificate shows my name, who I am, not who I was. My dad's name is listed as my father. There, there is nothing anywhere uh, on this document. Look at the front, the back, look for fine print. There's nothing in reference to who I was. It's all about who I am. My dad gave me his name. And so to my spiritual beginning, I was born in trespasses and sin, as the Bible tells us. I was an enemy of God. I was of my father, the devil. But God did something for me that changed my life for all eternity. He sought me. He called me. He drew me unto himself. And as one draws water from a well, and the water in the bucket is compelled to go to, go to the one who draws it. He gave me his name. He calls me his child. I call him Father, Abba. I became a new creature in Christ Jesus. My God gave me his name. And if I had a, a birth certificate of my spiritual birth, it would be much like that of the state of Alaska. It would be describing who I am, not who I was. Nowhere would there be any reference to who I was. The back, fine print, look for it, it won't be there. I became a new creature in Christ Jesus. My God gave me his name. So I trust that this is your story as well. We read in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And in that same book, chapter 8, verses 14 and 15, where we talk about this adoption of God, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. You know, and we, as believers, we are actually the, we are the descendants, we are the promise that God made back to Abram, reiterated to Abraham, you know, his, his seed. We are the promise to Abraham. We who, are, who have been given this right to be called children of God, we have much to be thankful for. We have reason to worship we have reason to praise. We have reason to offer up ourselves as a living sacrifice to him who is worthy. And he is worthy. He is worthy of all our praise. He's worthy of all our adoration. He alone is worthy. So 
Let's pray together. Oh God, our Father, we're so grateful to you for allowing us to call you Father, for adopting us into your family and calling us your own. May our praises be to you as a sweet aroma. Lord, you are our God. You are the sovereign one. Nothing is too difficult for you. And we thank you, and we thank you, and we thank you. And we pray in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. If you uh, have your Bible with you, please turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Um, just so you know ahead of time that this message is uh, not an expositional message. This is more of a thematic message. I'm not going to necessarily tie down to one passage, but we're going to look at a major theme of the New Testament in particular and how that relates to us. So as kind of a beginning, Colossians chapter 1 is where I would like for us to turn before I pray. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray together. Our Father, Lord, I thank you for your holy, inerrant, inspired written word that you have preserved for the ages, that you have so kindly decided to make yourself known, to illuminate our minds to the truth of your word, that we may know God. And Father, I pray that as we seek to be honest with ourselves and, and honest with the word today, Lord, perhaps we will see things and hear things that are not easy to take. But nonetheless, Father, let us be so careful to hear your word for that which it says. And Lord, respond accordingly to what we see in the word of God. That we might be a people who honor you and, Father, who are, who are helpful, who are usable in your hands as instruments for the gospel endeavor, for the glory of Christ, and our everlasting joy. Father, I pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Anytime there's a glaring difference between our ministry here or the ministry in a certain geographical location and that of Jesus... It should catch us off guard, and we should take a few steps back and really ask the question, where did we fall off the path? If our approach and our thinking, our mindset on a specific topic is in contrast to that of what Jesus said and did, it should really cause us to take a step back. If there's a, a, a glaring, obvious difference in Jesus' approach to coming into this world and ministering in this world, if that looks much different than what we think is right or even that which we're practicing, it's time to stop at the fork in the road, come back to the Word of God, and ask Him to clearly reveal to us what are we missing and how are we missing it. I am convinced, beloved, there's a missing ingredient in the preparation of disciples, specifically in America, but in other parts of the world as well. The reason I specifically say other parts of the world and not the whole world is because there are some aspects and some categories of our world where this doesn't need to be taught because it's so prevalent in their culture. 
The, the ingredient that I'm convinced is missing is the ingredient of preparing new disciples in Christ for the hostility that awaits them in this world. Now, there are some brothers and sisters, they, they come to Jesus or, or they lead somebody, somebody else comes to Christ by their ministry, and they know that if I, if I come to Christ, I, I lose my family and potentially my life immediately if it gets out. And so it doesn't necessarily need to be taught. They know that, and it's embedded in their culture. It is not so embedded in our culture, what I want to speak on this morning. And in other cultures in this world, it is not embedded. And I will say it goes against our very inclination as humans, what I want to speak on this morning. This particular thing that I am directing our attention to is that we are called to minister in a hostile environment to Jesus, the gospel, and the messengers. God's, God has called us to go into a world that despises Christ, his message, and those who bring the message. Now, I could say that in other parts of this world, and the way it lands in their ears, their first response is, of course, of course, that's what it is. But then there's other portions in the world where you go, no, not my neighbors. Not my family. Not my extended family. No way. And I preface this on purpose this way. I've already said it once, but I want to say it again because... How do I put this? There are times, beloved, when we see something from the Word of God... And at first glance, we say, that could never happen in my life. And yet the Bible says it with clarity that it is the case, that it is the fact, that it is the truth. And so there are times in this life as a Christian where my experience takes a back seat to what the Word says the way things are. And you might taste that a little bit this morning as we look at the Word of God. So this Morning, uh, I want to spend some time in this message and look and consider the biblical witness to the fact that God has called you into a hostile world as his disciple. The way I want to do this this morning is I want to look at the teaching and example of Jesus Christ, the teaching and example of the early church, and for whose sake we suffer are my three main points that I want you to hang your thoughts on here. But first, let me just do a quick smattering backdrop. Um, everybody here know who Bob Ross is? Remember the guy, the painter who had the afro, right? <clears throat> anyway, um, one of my favorite guys to watch paint those pictures because uh, it always shows me this illustration over and over and over again. That backdrop that is so dark and so blah, makes those colors look so glorious. So here's the backdrop of everything I want to say this morning. After the fall, human beings are born dead in sin and trespasses. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us that we are desperately sick. Romans 3.10-18 is a devastating, leveling passage of Scripture. I'm just giving you these if you want to jot them down. Ephesians 2 says that you who were dead in your sins and trespasses, God made alive. And Colossians 1.21 just told us that the Colossian believers were hostile to God prior to their conversion. Hostile to him. I remember a brother teaching in a Sunday school class, wasn't here, this is a bunch of years ago, and somebody in that class said, I don't like the word hostile. Well, too bad, because that's what the Bible says, is that you, outside of Christ, are hostile to him. Paul says that we are backbiters, haters of God. Now, I know, I know, immediately we could have that sweet little old unsaved aunt and go, well, not her, you know, the bad people, not the good people. No, the scripture says, whether Jew or Gentile, whether slave or free, all of them, everybody, the entire human race in Adam is dead in sins and trespasses, haters of God, hostile to Christ. That, that does not sit well. We, we hear that and we think, oh, that's just a hard one to choke down. 
Well, it is what the Word says. It is the testimony of the Word of the living God. This is the nature of man apart from sovereign grace. And here's what I find so fascinating. So there's your backdrop. Here's what I find so fascinating. Jesus doesn't spend much time to argue that. He just presupposes it in what he says to his disciples. So look with me, if you would, Matthew chapter 10. Just to give you a flavor of some of the preparations of Christ to his disciples for where he's sending them. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. You imagine, did anybody tell you that when you came to Christ? Anybody look you in the eye and say, now that you've come to Christ, now that you've been born again, now that you are alive in him, you are going out as sheep among wolves. You heard that? Have you heard anybody say that? Anybody told you that, warned you about that? Let me, let me flip it around. Have you been warning anybody about that? Anybody that you've discipled or are discipling, did you say, you are going as sheep among wolves now that you are in Christ? It, is, it really pains me. It bothers me deep in my soul when I see Jesus doing something I have not been doing. When his ministry has, a, has an ingredient to it that I, I, I'm, I've missed. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. What a sweet promise. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother, now listen to this, brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Beloved, do you hear that Jesus is not saying perhaps or maybe or, or hypothetically speaking, this could happen. He says you will be hated for my name's sake. Now, this is Jesus rightly preparing his disciples for what they will encounter in this world. There is a reason Christ said, come after me, take up your cross, and follow after me. Nobody in that time period, none of those disciples heard cross and thought, well, I'm sure by cross he means, and you can fill in the blank with whatever you want, because we use that terminology sometimes, it's my cross to bear. Kind of use that over in our culture, but that's not what they would have heard. The first response in their mind was, Jesus just said, die. Because the cross was an instrument for death. These men had seen people carry their cross to where they would then be crucified. So what Jesus is saying is, take up your cross, prepare to die, and follow me. When was the last time you heard somebody share the gospel and say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and then come to him and be ready to die right now? This is a death sentence to you. You are a living sacrifice. You live your life ready to die all day, every day for the sake of Jesus. You hand over your rights with a desire to please him in any way and every way. What's fascinating to me is the response is, well, you couldn't make converts that way. You don't make converts. The Spirit of God makes converts. This is why the apostles, when talking with Jesus, said, this is impossible. And Jesus' response, that which is impossible for man is possible with God. Beloved, can I remind you, you've come from death to life. You don't sneak people into the kingdom. It's by the power of the Spirit of God that brings you to him. And so that being the case, Jesus holds nothing back in his warning. And he says, you will be 
hated by all for my namesake. And he goes so strong, even to the fact that you, your family members will come against you. Division will be in your own family. Brothers, sisters, in-laws will despise you at times for the sake of my name. This is going to happen. John chapter 15, if you have your Bibles there, John chapter 15, verse 18. John 15, 18. Again, just to give a flavor of Christ's warning of his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, beloved, that that is what my brother Link was talking about. We've been adopted out of this. But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Please notice, he does not say maybe. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. And catch this quote. They hated me without a cause. Jesus never, ever questions if you will suffer, if his disciples will suffer. He says, when this takes place, you are suffering for my name's sake. This is the world's response to you. Now, at times, we can look at this world and we can see people doing all kinds of good things, quote, unquote. And as we look at that, we need to simply ask the question, what does God tell me about the heart of man? And God's word tells me that which is in the heart of man, not my own perception of my perceived thought that, well, they're, they're half good and half bad. No, the scripture does not talk like that. There are no hypothetical warnings here. Jesus graciously, and this, this hits my heart very hard as a, as a minister of the gospel, Jesus graciously is preparing his disciples for a very rough road. The longer I serve as a pastor, the more I am convinced one of the the major um, tasks on my life is to do my best to prepare myself, my wife, my children, and Pacific Coast Bible Church to prepare us for suffering. Now, there's different kinds of suffering, I know that. But, beloved, in particular, for suffering at the hands of a hostile world. I get that mandate from the Lord Jesus. But I also get that mandate from the early church, which we'll look at in just a second. Now, here's the interesting thing, is that Jesus, Jesus warned, he absolutely warned a few different things. He warned that you would be maligned for the truth and for your faith. He warned that you would be mistreated, both uh, socially and physically. They will mock you, they will slander you, they will make fun of you, and they will hurt you. They will hurt your body, and they will seek to kill you so they can get you out of this world so you are no longer salt and light in this world. Now, the interesting part to me is we hear that, and man, oh man, that sounds so foreign. And yet, can I remind you that in another part of this world today, there are brothers and sisters held captive, being tortured physically for the sake of the same Jesus you love. For his sake, they're suffering right this second. While we're comfy here in this padded life, they are suffering. There will be outright hatred of his disciples. There will be physical abuse, torture, and even death. And there will be divisions among families for the sake of the Lord Jesus. 
and they're suffering for righteousness' sake. Not suffering because they did something wrong or because they've done something evil. They aren't being punished for an evil deed. They're being punished because of their union to Christ. Now, here's what's so interesting. You guys know this. I know this. Typically, when we have somebody that we want to listen to, uh, teach, or so on and so forth, we very much want to look at their life and say, okay, I hear what you're saying, but I kind of want to look at your life. If Jesus taught this, and then we saw Jesus in the lap of luxury, flying on his brand new jet, and living a life that is so posh, all of us would go, what are you talking about suffering? No, Jesus exemplified this very thing with his life and with his death. The Lord Jesus Christ, his popularity came and went. You know, we looked at this at the palms, at, during Palm Sunday when Jesus is coming down the hill and people are saying, oh, Hosanna, Hosanna, the son of David, this is him. Our Messiah has come. This is the one. Let's take him. Let's crown him. And let's have it our way. Finally, we've got our king. Just fast forward a few days, and they're saying, crucify him. Crucify him. No, we're going to take Barabbas. No, free Barabbas. Let Barabbas go. Let him, let him go free. Then who would I put in his place? Take Jesus and kill him. Jesus' popularity came and went so fast, just fades so quick when the popularity is from fallen man. Guys, don't... Please, do your best. Don't buy into the popularity this world offers you. It comes and goes. It means nothing. Constantly bombarded by divisive men's, men, in particular the, the teachers and preachers of the day, the experts in the law, always waiting. As Jesus is teaching, they're always lurking and waiting to catch him in something. He heals somebody. He helps somebody. He heals them on the Sabbath. And they're like, finally, we've got him. He healed on the wrong day. You imagine living under that kind of pressure? Everywhere you go, there's a group of people going, at some point, I'm going to catch him. Constantly bombarded. Illegally captured and beat. Every disciple flees. And as they punch him, blindfolding him, beating him, wrongfully accusing him. Now, this is the interesting piece, is that they, I'm saying wrongfully accuse him because in their mind, they believe he's not God, but truly, they are accusing him of what he actually did. He is God. When he called himself, I am the great I am, and they said, this is why they wanted to kill him all the more, because he was accounting himself as equal with God. They saw that as his wicked sin. Well, it is a wicked sin, unless he's God. And he is. By all means, he is God, and yet they wrongfully accuse him. They bring in people. They twist his words just as sinful man does. He said this. He never said that. Yes, he did say this to the point that they do a mock trial, and you actually have Pontius Pilate wash his hands and say, I see nothing wrong with what this man has done. But because he's a wimp, he folds, and he says, like a good leader, I'll let the people run amok, and you can have Christ. And in that dark hour, they take him, they mock him, they beat him, they rip open his flesh, they strip him, And they nail him to a cross. As his disciples watch in horror. His own mother watches her baby crucified. Jesus, when he spoke of the hatred and the hostile nature towards him and his message and his people, oh, beloved, don't you see that in the crucifixion of Christ? Well, now I want to look at the teaching and example of the early church. And what I'm doing is looking at a handful of of passages in the book of Acts. So if you would, turn with me to Acts 5. And we'll go through these kind of quickly. But I just want to give you a flavor of the fact that Jesus warned his disciples, not because they wouldn't suffer, but because they most certainly would suffer. Acts chapter 5, verse 38 is is where I'm going 
Acts chapter 5, verse 38. So in the present case, I tell you, this is Gamaliel arguing and trying to calm down the crowd and basically saying, stay away from these guys if they truly are of the Lord. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or undertaking is of man, it'll fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. So they're letting them go, but they're giving them a reminder in their body. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Now, I've never, uh, it's been quite a while since I've been beat. I don't know about you. But here they are as they have been taken, and by the hands of these people, they beat their body. I don't know about you. If somebody slaps you across the face or somebody gives you a, a kidney shot, the natural reaction is so much to guard yourself, to protect yourself, to, to, to stop it. Or at least to be angry. Their reaction. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing. That they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Yes, you beat us. Yes, you pounded us. Yes, you mocked us. But we will continue to preach the gospel. We'll continue to preach the word. And the church is exploding. You, fallen, hostile world, can do nothing against the power of God. Okay, Acts 7. Acts chapter 7, verse 54. This is the context where Stephen has been given an argument from the Old Testament scriptures, moving up to the crescendo of his message where he says, you were the ones that crucified Christ who happened to be the Lord of glory. If you look at the context here, look at verse 52 of chapter 7. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of the soon-to-be evangelist of evangelists in the history of the church, a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, please, beloved, catch it, as they were stoning him, in the midst of killing this man. He called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Another way of saying, he died. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. We could probably, about every page of Acts, find something, but I'm just giving you a flavor for the early church. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James. That's all we're told, but he killed James, the brother of John with the sword. This is so sad and so sick and yet so clear and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was the days of unleavened bread during those days. Acts chapter 16, verse 22. <clears throat> Acts 
The crowd joined in, attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safe. And 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Beloved, it is just painted with this. This is the history of the early church. Listen to what the Apostle Paul, as he explains. Imagine if we had the Apostle Paul visit this morning and this little man who had been beaten so many times came up to this pulpit and stood here and you said, Paul, would you share a little bit about your ministry this morning? And the Apostle were to tell you this. Just picture that, beloved. Picture the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, lest one. Thirty-nine lashes, five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys. Wow, Paul, were you scared? Were you ever in danger? In danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things. He clears his desk and puts this one thing in the middle. There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Christians were taken and put into the Colosseum to be eaten by wild beasts for entertainment. Christians were used as lamps to light a garden as they burned alive. Christians have been strangled, they have been beheaded, they have been crucified, they've been crucified upside down, they have been mocked, slandered. Beloved, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Jesus was not, he was not warning them of something potential. He was warning them of the future. This is what you will encounter. Every apostle, as far as we know from church history, except for John, were martyred in brutal, brutal, ghastly ways for the sake of the Lord Jesus. All of this taking place, Christians... The history of Christianity is one of constant pain and suffering at the hands of a hostile world that hates Jesus, hates his message, and hates his messenger by nature. Let that settle for just a second. Because we don't hear that often enough. And Jesus spoke about it so often in preparation for his disciples as they went into this world. But brothers, sisters, we we have been in this bubble of America for so long, this seems so foreign and so contrary to that which we know. But it's it's all around us in this world. I praise God and thank him so much for the the liberties and the joys and the gifts and and the lives that have been spent for those liberties in this country. I praise the Lord for that. But you are not promised that in the Scripture. You are promised suffering. And I think that we've forgotten that, that this country is an anomaly. It makes no sense biblically when we are at ease with everybody. And it's sure looking presently like there's more coming that is lining up with the Scripture. But not just in our country, in many different parts of this world, there is greater persecution heating up for the sake of Christ. Well, let me ask this question. For whose sake? 
is all this going on? For whose sake are you suffering? The scripture tells us over and over that this is for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Now, I want to say something really quick that I don't, I'm not seeking to offend, offend you uh, or, or any, any believer for that matter, but I want us to be so careful when at times we suffer because we are rude or annoying or just an outright pain, and then when the world responds annoyed, we go, I'm suffering for Jesus' sake. No, you're just annoying. That's all that's going on there. You know, you stand in the face of an unbeliever and you go, hit me, hit me, hit me, come on. And then they hit you and you go, suffering for Jesus' sake? No, 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 no. No, you, you've actually just completely um, just been, well, I was going to say dealt with accordingly, but I shouldn't say that either. Let us be careful, beloved, to remember that when we suffer for Christ's sake, let us be careful to know that we are truly suffering for Christ's sake and not suffering because we're simply coming and seeking to be aggressive, rude people. If you look at the temperament of the believers in the early church, it's so sweet. It's so loving, even of those, to the point that as they are stoning Stephen, the last thing on the man's lips is, Father, please forgive them for what they're doing to me right now. What happens in the soul of an individual that could pray that in that moment? I don't... I don't know. It's just pure grace. But the Scripture says that truly we are suffering for Christ's sake. Our union with Jesus is such that we suffer in Him. And this is a beautiful category. I wish I had more time for just this category, but just follow with me, the scripture continually says you are so close to Jesus that the suffering you are taking for his name's sake is actually his suffering. You are bearing Jesus's wounds on your body. In Galatians chapter 6, the apostle Paul says, I have the marks of Jesus on my body, the brand marks of Jesus on my body. I've been branded as his disciple. What marks? Have you seen my back? My back has been torn open and then healed and then torn open and then healed and torn open then healed. They shred it. They throw me in the dirt back in the cell. I come out. They open it again. I've been beaten with rods. I have endured this. And those wounds are Jesus' wounds. It is for his sake. Let me take your attention to a very interesting passage, uh, John chapter 7, verse 7. And I want you to pay careful attention to the word cannot in this text, not may not. This is not about permission. This is about inability. Okay? So you ask your teacher, may I, you know, can I go to the bathroom? I'm sure you can, and yes, you may. One is about ability. The other one is about permission. This passage is about ability. Listen to what Christ says in John 7, 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Well, Jesus, why are we suffering? Matthew chapter 5. Stick with me, beloved, if you would. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Please notice that word. It's so important. Falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is for the sake of Christ. And just for time's sake, I'm going to turn here. You can write it down or follow if you want. But 1 Peter 4.14, <clears throat> I'm going to read that passage as soon as my fingers and brain collaborate together. 1 Peter 4.14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
This is a blessing in suffering for Jesus Christ. We are suffering for Jesus, and our union is so close to him that when those, those mockings, when those beatings, when those things are leveled at us, Jesus is saying, you are enduring, you are taking my suffering. Which, again, I don't, want to, I can't, don't have time to develop the whole thing, but I find it so interesting that if, if that's the case, doesn't that make sense in Acts 5 where the apostles said, we were considered worthy to suffer for the name. We're enduring the sufferings of Christ upon us for his name's sake. I'm suffering for Jesus in Christ. I'm so close to him. They can't get to him. He's dead, buried, resurrected at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning. But they can get to his people. We can get to his people. Spurgeon said, I believe... Uh, at one point, he said that if the world could reach Jesus, they'd crucify him again, but they cannot, so they go for his people. And we take those marks of Christ and suffer, whether it is social, physical, psychological, spiritual attacks, we suffer for him. I know at times, sometimes folks will say, we don't suffer in America. Um, it's a different kind of suffering for sure. Uh, I believe some of the enemy's greatest devices are in our country. Because the best way to keep us off the track of following the Lord Jesus is beautiful distractions. And when they're beating you and you have nothing, it makes it more simple to focus on Christ. I'm not saying easy, but more simplified. If you want to give the church, if you want to kill the church, quote unquote, give her everything she wants. If you want to see her thrive, persecute her. There's a tremendous blessing in suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ. So, beloved, may we never forget that suffering for the Lord Jesus is a blessed, and here's the word that I'm, I'm still mentally wrestling with, but I believe it. It is a blessed privilege to suffer for Jesus' sake. Otherwise, why would the apostles say that they were considered worthy to suffer for his name? We are not above our master. The, the more we find ourselves closer to Christ, the more we will find ourselves uncomfortable in this world. You are not above Jesus. May none of us ever dare think that we could go this life without suffering. You're not above Christ. Can I remind you guys, we are gathered here together to celebrate and glory in a crucified Messiah. One who was slaughtered and crucified for our namesake. And if they persecuted him why on earth would we ever buy into the lie we'd get out of this life without suffering? It is promised to us. All those who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It is a promise from the word of God. And yet, in particular in our country right now, we are saying, how could people be mean to me? What about my 501c3? Why are things not as easy as they once were? Where's my liberties? What's happening? And I know I'm on thin ice, and I'm not trying to start a fight or an argument, but I just think we need to be reminded the one thing that God owes you is wrath. Your right that you can shake your fist in God's face and say, you owe me, is his wrath. The rest is grace. Pure grace of God. That is a hard truth because we are a people who are expectant. We struggle with entitlement. And I deserve it. No, you don't. I don't. Beloved, I should endure God's wrath right this second. I have offended him. I have broken his law. I deserve the wrath of God. And I am never going to taste the wrath of the living God because of sovereign grace. 
And then on top of that, Jesus says, actually, the promise that I've made you, I have made you, you are promised. If you are a Christian, you've been born again, and you're in Christ this morning, the promise of the Word of God is you'll suffer in this world because mankind is hostile to the Lord whom you love. Scratch the surface just a little bit, and you will see the hostility in the heart of man against Christ, his message, and his people. Beloved, don't be surprised by it. No, from the word of God. This is promised to you. This is promised for you. Let me draw to a conclusion, flipping the coin just a little bit, and bringing something to your attention that I'm convinced you all know. I hope with all my heart you know. But maybe you aren't wrestling with it right now. The hostile world, where this world that is is mocking us, despising us, persecuting us. They are consistently trying on the news to malign Christians, to slander Christians. They're murdering us in other parts of this world. That gross, evil, wicked, despicable, hostile people is your mission field. And if I may remind you from the word of God, my, my dear friends, you were in that mission field apart from grace. See, we make the mistake sometimes when we talk about good people and bad people. No, there's just bad people and they're saved people. You were a bad people, saved by grace. You are not saved because you were a little better than the other people. The Bible never once says, here's the somewhat good people, here's the really bad people, and here's the really, really bad people, and the somewhat good people are the ones that become Christians. Then we have the enemies out in the world. No, you are the enemy of God apart from Christ. And when he brings you to himself, dead men made alive and then commissioned to herald the message, beloved, we've got to get our head on straight theologically to know that that world out there, yes, they may appear as our enemies, but those enemies of the cross need Christ as much as you do. And as they spit on us and slander us, I find it so interesting when you hear the testimony of, of martyrs and believers throughout church history and presently, you know who they pray for most often? Those who are hurting them. The people who are doing the greatest harm to them are the ones that they're pleading with the Lord for their salvation. Not to save them from the suffering, but there's a, there's a desire. They recognize this individual needs Christ so badly. So badly. And we draw these artificial lines where we say, those are the weird people or the bad people, and we are the ones who are fighting the good fight of faith. The good fight of faith is the gospel. The only saving message that will rescue that batch of people the same way as it saved you and me. See, we're, we're beggars who found some bread, and there's other beggars. We're starving. We find the bread. They're starving. We take the bread to them. It's not that we're well-fed and we make the bread. No, we just found bread through Christ. I'm not standing on a platform of my own righteousness. I'm standing on a platform of the righteousness of Jesus and his sovereign grace making me alive. I was dead. Now I'm alive spiritually. And then he says, now I've commissioned you to take this gospel message out to that world and they are going to trash you. And as they trash you, I will build my church and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. You mean to tell me, Lord, I will suffer and suffer and suffer and declare and declare and declare and then you will actually make these who are hurting me your people and then I see them as my brother? Can I remind you Paul and Stephen are in heaven together? As Paul's, Paul's sitting there with the coats of the people who are murdering Stephen and then he's breathing threats, persecuting the church and now those two are in the presence of the Lord right now. Beloved, This hostile world is our mission field. As angry as we may be with them, with political differences, with great differences with them about morals, they are still those who would be saved by grace the exact same way you are saved by grace. 
your sin is not a better sin than their sin. May we see our great dependency on God's power in the work that he's called us to. Because I don't know about you, here's what's happening in my heart emotionally as I look what's happening in our country right now and in other parts of the world. I have this heightened sense of excitement and fear mingled together. I don't want to be hurt. I don't want my family hurt. I don't want my church family to be injured. I don't want to see you suffer. But if you suffer for Christ's sake, that's a blessing. Blessed are you if you suffer for his name. And on top of that, dear Christian, God will use you to build his church. But there's also that level of excitement that we've lived in this American bubble for so long, we have not tasted what our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world have tasted. I hope you understand what I'm about to say. If not, write an email to Dennis. I don't know how all this works, and I I will take that for what it's worth. But don't you find it fascinating that in the Scripture, when somebody suffers for Christ, they say, we were worthy, or we were counted worthy, or we had the blessing of being persecuted. And brothers in other parts of this world are being persecuted and suffering, and we're not. Why not? It's a leading question that I'm not answering because I don't know the answer, but I find it so fascinating, the anomaly of our country, where we have been so at ease and so padded for so long. Why are we not suffering for Christ? And what is around the corner? Last passage I want to draw your attention to 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 close this message is found in Matthew chapter 9. If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. And if there was ever a passage that should be on our lips and in our minds in this world, whether it is in Kenya or whether it is in Pacific City, Listen to this. Matthew chapter 9, verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Please notice, beloved, he doesn't say pray that the harvest would be bigger. That's not the prayer that he lays here. He says, pray for more laborers because the harvest is expansive. It's massive. There are people, every billions and billions of individuals in need of Christ in this world right now. With the gospel message, you know, you rehearse, you love, you have, you have got between your ears with passion. Beloved, there are people everywhere. This world's crawling with them in need of the gospel right this second. That harvest is white, ready to be harvested. And Jesus says, but what I want you to pray for, I want you to pray for more people to go into that harvest, more laborers, that they would go into that harvest. Beloved, you are in this harvest. You are the salt and the light. You are the one with the saving message. You are the one with the gospel. This world is in desperate need. And this is what is so hard in my heart is that this world is desperate, in desperate need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they hate the message apart from grace. And they'll beat you for taking them the message. They will not thank you at times until we see the incredible work of regeneration and then to watch somebody before your very eyes spiritually go from death to life new creation in Christ, adopted into the family of God. I am amazed that the Lord is so kind as to bring us from death to life and then commission us with the message that saves. 
But we are believing a lie if we are surprised at the hostility of this world when we take the message. Prepare, Christian. Prepare yourself more and more. The world does not love Christ. The world does not love his message. The world will not love you. They cannot love you. But by grace, that message you're called to herald, God will bring people into himself. Draw them to himself, and they will declare him their Lord and their Savior. For the glory of Christ, I pray that this is the top priority of your life. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Pacific Coast Bible Church. I thank you for, Lord, the open Bibles on laps in this room. And Father, I pray that you would prepare hearts, missionary hearts, Lord, who recognize a hostile people in great need of the truth of the gospel. And Lord, for my brothers in Kenya who are leading their congregations and seeking to grow a people that will carry this same message that we know and love into their own little pockets of this world. Lord, bless those men. Bless them during uh, the conference that they are taking part in, God. And I pray that there would be great fruit in their ministry. And I ask this in the name of our precious Savior who has bought us with his precious blood. In Jesus' name, amen.